The word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here, whether you're here in the auditorium with us or if you're online somewhere else. We're glad uh, that you're a part of our worship service today. And if you missed last week, I got to tell you, you missed a lot. And you probably want to go back and catch the uh, live stream if you can, just because I want you to see the power of what happened here last Sunday. Every person that walked in the room was given a ribbon and, and asked to write, what is the thing that God is calling you to do this week? Maybe it's, we're going to follow that Christ hymn. What is the thing that you need to give up? What's the thing that God is opening and raising up for you to do? And we took those commitments, we wrote them on those ribbons, and then we all, the entire room, came up and placed those ribbons on uh, the mosaic behind me. And it was this beautiful experience. So if you had, didn't get to be able to experience that live, go and, and watch it and then see what happened when this church made a commitment. And I imagine what happened in the city of Abilene over the past week was phenomenal as each of us made commitments. And I, I came up here during the week and I, I just, I read a few of what, what you had written. And some of those commitments took way more than just one week to pull off because some of you were making life commitments to change. Some of you were making, you wrote names of people that you wanted to impact in the name of Jesus. Some of you wrote about habits that, that needed to break and new habits that needed to form. And I know that's going to take way more than one week. And so I want to encourage you to keep going on. We, we talked last week about the story of this early Christian hymn. And, and, and the, the weight of that hymn. It's, it's the bedrock. I love what Mike said two weeks ago. It's the bedrock on which a lot of other stories in Philippians are layered. It's, it's the story of Jesus who gave up divinity, who became a human being, not only a human being, but a slave. And not only a slave, became obedient to death, not only death, but death on a cross. And because Jesus was willing to pour himself out, because God was willing to stoop down to our level, Jesus was raised. God raised him from the dead, placed him in a place that is above every place, gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But we're not done with Philippians yet. There was this time I was hiking. It was with uh, my wife and one of our friends who, her name was Renee, and she was like a guide for us when we went hiking around in the Bay Area. And there's this one uh, open space called Fremont Older. It became one of my favorite places to go hiking in, in San Jose. 
And, and we, we were going on this hike, and it was one of those real steep climbs, a little bit of switchback, and all I could see was the summit. And, and Renee and Natalie were way ahead of me. I'm just playing catch up. I'm trying to get there. And all I want to do is get to that summit, not so I can do anything other than just stop walking for a minute, right? And, uh, and I get there, and Renee says, look. And I turn around. It was one of those crystal clear days, and I could see the Bay Bridge on the north side of town. I could see all the way across San Jose, a million people there whose lives were there to the south end of town. I could see it all. It was amazing. It was beautiful. And I said to Renee, thank you so much for taking us to this summit. This is wonderful. And she looks at me, and she laughs. She says, this isn't the summit. And then she points up. <laughs> oh. So there we go again, back up the switchbacks, back up this trail, and we get to the, the second summit. And this one's a little bit different. You can still see the city, but because it was such a clear day, you could turn around and you could see the ocean in the distance. I'll never forget that moment. That's kind of what's happening in Philippians for us. As we began this series, I ask you to make a commitment. Be here for five weeks, every week, five weeks in a row. Be here and, and experience this word together because we're coming to that summit where every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess because God is going to give Jesus the name that is above every name. But my dear friends, we're only halfway there. Now we're going to travel to the next summit in the book of Philippians because Paul gave us the bedrock of this hymn, not so that we can just experience the bedrock, but so that he can build a life for us together. Because we're heading to the next summit now, not where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but where everyone belongs. Because we gather at a table where everyone is welcome. We believe that everyone bears the image of God, and therefore everyone is worthy of love and respect. And Paul isn't writing this love letter to the Philippians just so that he can tell them how great they are and that he's doing okay. He's doing it because there is a severe fault happening in the Philippian church right now. There is a crack that is forming that will shatter this church if they're not careful. And while we revel in the experience, the eschatological truth that one day God is going to make everything right, we know that's true because God is in the process of making it right right now. We see that happening. We also live in the truth and the promise that everyone here belongs. Even if you don't like them. It might as well have been for Paul to say every Democrat, every Republican, everyone else. We all have a seat at God's table. Let's pray together. Father, the worship this morning led me in my heart to cry, holy, 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 because your son is worthy, worthy, worthy. The lamb that was slain for the sins of the world has rescued our hearts, has transformed our minds, and has given us a seat at the best table in the world. And Father, as we are welcome to the table, I pray that you welcome us to your word. As we, as we take ourselves to, to, to that place where we can hear you, where we put ourselves in the posture where we can be formed by you, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen.
Sometimes when I'm in the process of sermon formation, I like to go and have a conversation, like we write the text together uh, because we're going to figure out what this means together. And so this week I had the the good fortune of having um, a special conversation with my good friend Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., uh, but Martin Luther, the the, the monk who posted the theses on the door of, of the church who began what was later recalled the Reformation. And I, I got to talk with him, and he did, I didn't really know him all that well to begin with. I'd read a little bit of his work. And so he wanted to break the ice, and so he started with a joke. And I thought, okay, and this is the joke that he told me. I wanted to tell you about it. He said, how many, uh, you know, uh, how many Reformed monks does it take to change a light bulb? And I said, how many? He said, just one but nobody's going to do the works. Eh? Uh, yeah, first felt the same way. Um, th- 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 then I said, well, I-, I know a joke like that. There's one from my fellowship that sounds almost the same. I said, you know, how many Church of Christ elders does it take to change a light bulb? And he said, how many? And I said, change? <laughs> uh-huh. All right, that's a good one. You're with me now. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that, that informs how we come to this text together. Because Paul's going to write, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the problem with that sentence is, is that five of those words that Paul says mean something very different to us than it meant in the first century. And because the context of those five different words are so different, it's very hard for us to understand what Paul is trying to say. It's very difficult for us to understand work. It's very difficult for us to stand your. It's very difficult. We're going to misunderstand the word salvation in this context, and then also fear and trembling. Because if you grew up in the Church of Christ, now if you didn't grow up Church of Christ, if that's not your kind of, you've, you found us, but that's not where you came from, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight about our kind of um, collective neurosis. Uh, because it's going to help you understand where we come from where we talk about this text. If you grew up in a church of Christ, the, traditionally the church of Christ put a strong value on discovering the truth in the text, which is an incredible virtue. Our scholarship is amazing because we desperately needed to find out what Scripture said so that we could restore, restoration movement, restore what the first church, early church was like. And so what happens is we would scour the text, we would search the scriptures, and we would find the evidence of the things that the first century church was like, and then we'd place them into practice, which is a noble goal, which is a worthy thing to try to achieve. The problem happened is that we got a little bit neurotic about really having a lot of confidence. I think we held very tightly when we think we had it right. And what this meant was if, well, if we've got it right, if we've searched the scriptures, if we've figured it out, and we've put it into practice, if you don't agree with us, then you're obviously wrong. But it could also mean you're so wrong, your salvation is at risk. And that may have led us to alienate some of our brothers and sisters that are also in the kingdom. But the side effect of doing that is if you grew up in this system, if you're a part of this system, then you could never hold on to your salvation too tightly because you could have been wrong. Because being wrong is akin to being out of God's grace. 
And so that comes in and forms us. So when we hear the words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it means something a little bit different in our context than it did in Paul's context. It might mean you have to get this all right all the time. And if you're not doctrinally 100% on there, and if your behavior isn't 100% on there, then you may, you're at risk of going to hell. Unless, by God's grace, someone has mercy on you. And I don't think that's exactly what Paul means in this text. When we hear work out, work out your salvation, it sounds to us initially like an affront to grace. I mean, we aren't saved by works so that anyone can boast. We are saved by grace through faith. And so it's not about what you do. It's not like you can earn it. It's not like you're ever going to be good enough to make God there. We've tried that. We've been down that road. We know it's not successful. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is going to, he uses synonyms for work all over the book of Philippians. Work shows up all over the place. And grace doesn't free us from doing things. What grace does is it gives us the freedom to partner with God and do the thing that God has already done doing. Does that make sense? As Fred Craddock said, sometimes it it seems like the only place that we can defend the doctrine of grace is from a hammock. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the work that God is already doing, the work that God is doing in you and in this world, God is creating in you the will and the heart to do something good in the kingdom, to join God where God is working there. Work it out. Do Do the effort. The second piece of this thing is that it's, it's not just work out my salvation, it's work out y'all's salvation. We're all West Texans, so we know what that means. Y'all is plural, it's not singular. It's not like somehow that you have to earn it for yourself so that you can get your button checked or your, your ticket checked so that you can get in heaven. He's talking about the church's salvation. But the other word we don't understand there is salvation because there's salvation with the big S, kind of the eschatological, what Jesus does uh, on the cross and through the, God does in the empty tomb to create that place where we can live with God forever, to join into God's kingdom. I don't think that this is a big S salvation. I think this is a small S salvation. It's kind of like when you bring a birthday cake to the party and you forget to bring the knife. And everybody's standing around thinking, am I going to stick my hand into that cake in order to eat some? I'm willing to do that, but it's going to be gross. And somebody says, oh, I've got a knife, and pulls out one, and then you all get to cut the cake and eat it. That person with the knife saved the party. I think that's what Paul is saying here. I think when he says, work out your salvation, I don't think he's talking about the rightness of God. Jesus has already handled that. I think he's talking about the health, the spiritual health, and the ongoing life that's happening in Philippi. That there is a crack, there is a fissure. There's a sickness in that church. And if it's not dealt with, they're going to die. The yore has been influenced by Western individualism. Salvation has been We've been conditioned to think that that's my job and not the church's job. What Paul is saying is, try to save your community that's in peril. And then he says, do it with fear and trembling. And I don't know if you've ever been so afraid that your body has trembled. 
It's kind of like this limbic response that happens where your brain has is, is, is dropped a lot of adrenaline into your body because it's fight or flight or freeze, and you're going to have to do something about it. You can't help it. You can't make your hand stop shaking. You've been in that moment where you've been afraid. That's not, I think, what Paul is talking about here. I think that kind of phrase, fear and trembling, leads us to a place that makes us think that God is not for us. That God is looking to punish us. That God is just watching you to see if you're going to slip up so that God can ground you or send you to hell. That doesn't align with what we know about God in Scripture. What we know about God in Scripture is God is for us. God sent his son to die for us. God sent Jesus to earth not so that he could, uh, not so that Jesus could appease God from the sinfulness of humanity, but so that humanity could know who God truly is. Fear and trembling is not a state where you cannot approach the living God. Fear and trembling is a phrase that comes out of the Old Testament that says that the posture of approaching God is one of obedience. It just means that when you come to God, your Father, the God that adores you, the God that thinks the world of you, you go in a posture of obedience. It's kind of like understanding the true nature of sin, right? Sin is not breaking a rule. Sin is not breaking a law. Sin is always the breaking of relationship. Hear that and let it sit in. Sin is never breaking a law or a rule. Sin is always breaking a relationship. And what God does first every time in Scripture is mend the relationship. Mend their love. For it's God doing the work. That's what Paul says next. Work out, your, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God is the one that's doing the work in us and among us and in you. And let me make that clear. That task is for us together to seek to have the same mind, the posture of the God who stoops, uh, the, the, the habit of the obedience of the Son, submitting ourselves to one another and to the Father. And that is the work of God in us. The promise of this text is that God is in our midst. God is here, and God is doing the work for his good pleasure. So don't murmur and argue. Don't complain and be bitter with one another. Because what God is doing right now is for God's own good pleasure. Do you have that thing in your life like that? The good pleasure? It's something that you love to do just because you love to do it, and you don't care what anybody else thinks about that. You love to do it. Maybe it's getting up early in the morning and going fishing by yourself. Maybe it's, it's reading those like trashy like crime detective noir novels, and you don't ever tell anybody what you read, but you just love them because you love them. I don't know what it is for you. you know, it's not something you put on your, your Instagram because you know it's going to get the likes. It's not something you do because you know it's the right or healthy or good thing. Nobody wants to eat kale. Everybody is forced to eat kale. Kale's terrible. But you do it because it's the right thing. This is God's good pleasure is not eating kale. God's good pleasure is mile like two and a half on the run when the endorphins kick in and you're just flying free. You're not doing it for any other reason than just that's what your body wants to do in that God's good pleasure is to complete the work that he began in Jesus Christ in your life. 
God's good pleasure is for us to grow and for the sinews and the muscles and the bones and the tendons of this body to knit so that we might become the best representation of Jesus in this world. That's what God wants to do. That's what God looks forward to doing. God doesn't have to tell anyone about it because that's what God wants to do. And Paul says the thing that's going to destroy that more than anything else is if you murmur and argue. Now, again, he's reaching into the Old Testament there. Murmuring has this history. It's, it's straight out of Exodus uh, chapter 16. It's the story, I don't know if you ever heard it. It's the story of when the, the Israelites are, are traveling in the wilderness, and um, they, they've been delivered by God from, as slaves from Egypt. They've been taken through the Red Sea, and Moses is leading them to the Promised Land. But there's this kind of 40 years of wandering as they learn to trust God. And while they wander, they murmur and they grumble. In the book of Exodus and Numbers, murmuring is the opposite of faith. It's complaining is the opposite of faith. And, and they're sick of manna. They're, they're hungry. They have no food. And so God gives them manna. It's this flaky bread that just appears in the morning. They can get it off the ground and they can eat it. And they're tired of eating manna. They want something else. They want meat. Now, in my mind, as I think about what it would be like to be a slave in Egypt, you have to imagine slaves don't get to eat meat very often. But they're, they're imagining to themselves, maybe we should just go back to Egypt because at least there we got regular food. We weren't stuck with manna. We had uh, fruits and vegetables. And, and what we really want is some meat. And so God gives them meat. God meets their needs. And he says, don't, don't grumble and don't complain. God loves the good pleasure of feeding and caring for the people who are in the wilderness and if we dial up murmuring, it becomes arguing. And with those closest to you, those in your, your family or your friendships, what murmuring does to community is what arguing does to friendships. If you're in that constant place of bickering and infighting, it's gonna, what it does is it hollows out a community and it, it leaves it crippled from any attack or any crisis from the outside or the inside. It rots out the strength of the bones of a, of a community. So when it's time to move fast or there's a crisis that comes, there's nothing inside to fight back. It, it would be as if murmuring and complaining, that, that kind of arguing, it destroys the immune system of the church. That doesn't mean we can't disagree. It doesn't mean that we can't debate. It means that we have to do it in love having, as what Paul would say, the same mind. I had these two elders when we worked, lived in Arkansas, and they couldn't be more different. One of them had this very logical, rational mind. He was like Mr. Spock, and, uh, and he, would, he could form a debate, and he, I mean, it's like he spoke in five-paragraph essay, five essays. It was phenomenal to watch. Everything had ration and reason for him. And there was this other elder who was completely intuitive in everything that he did. He just, he felt the emotion, he felt the spirit, he knew the right thing, and he did it. And you would ask him why, and he's like, I don't know, I just, that was the right thing to do. And more often than not, he was right. Imagine when these two men get in the same room and they have to discuss something. Because my, my elder, Mr. Spock, would say, well, it's just not rational for people to do these sort of things. There's no sense in this. And, and my other elder, Bob, would say, There's, they don't need sense in this. They're doing what they want to do. 
And those two men would go at each other. They would go at each other in elder meeting after elder meeting, and they would argue and fight. When they got together for coffee, they would debate and argue and fight. And it got so heated at times, I thought, one of these guys is going to walk out with a punch in the face, because that's exactly what's going to happen. But that's not what happened. That never happened. Because they loved each other. Because they trusted each other. These two elders were the first two elders that got the call when someone was in trouble because the church knew that they loved the church. And they would be the first two elders, shepherds, to be in a hospital room to pray and, and bring comfort. They would be the last two elders to leave, and they were the first to, in, to invite anyone that was new out to lunch so that they could get to know them. They were shepherds at heart. They couldn't be any more different but they were aligned with each other. They had the same mind of what God was trying to do in their city. It reminded me a lot of, of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. If you know anything about kind of the origin of, of the American story, that, that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did not agree on anything. They constantly fought and argued and debated with one another. It's fascinating to me that the story goes that they died about five hours apart in very different locations. And although he was the thorn... In Adam's flesh, Thomas's last hope, excuse me, although oh, Jefferson was the thorn in Adam's flesh, Adam's last hope for the nation was at least Jefferson survives. And in order for us to have a good result, we need disagreement. We need to have the ability to have conversations where we can speak truth to one another. It's the only way we get to a good result. But in order to have good disagreement, we must have trust. And this carries the theme of the entire chapter of, of Philippians chapter 2. It begins with if. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation from love, if there is any sharing in the Spirit, if any compassion and sympathy, then... If these things are true, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and be in one mind. And that doesn't mean we're always going to agree. It doesn't mean that you and I are always going to see eye to eye or that you have to be in lockstep with the church. One of the things I love about Highland is the diversity that we had. If, if, if we ask a theologically loaded question to any of you, we would get just as many question, answers as we ask people. And I love that about our church. But what we have to understand is that the work of God, God's good pleasure, is to bring us to unity where everyone is welcome, even if you disagree. Everyone belongs, even if they're different than you. Because Christ has made the table open to all. And I want you to imagine with me just for a minute, what does it look like when a community can embrace that? What would it look like if we were inoculated to murmuring? If we had a people, a church, a congregation who were emotionally intelligent and wise and were able to kind of create that herd immunity that didn't allow those diseases that were threatening to destroy the church in Philippi mess with us. What would happen if gossip at Highland didn't stick? I mean, it's going to happen, right? Somebody's going to say something. 
But what happens if it doesn't stick? One of the most powerful moments that happened as I was a young minister in Arkansas, watching the church learn to love each other despite differences and the challenges that were there. One of those two elders, Mr. Spock and Mr. Intuitive, one of those elders got accused of something. And the first person to come to their defense was the other elder. If one of them faced a challenge, the other would be there because they loved each other. And their like-mindedness was greater than their differences. He, Paul goes on to say, in a sinful and twisted generation, be like light. And again, he's pulling back from the Old Testament there. He's talking about uh, Deuteronomy 32, except in Deuteronomy 32, uh, Moses, or the author, calls, calls Israel the swick, sick and twisted generation. But Paul is flipping that on his head and saying that that's not who it is. You are in a sick and twisted generation, but you are not. You are called to be something more. You are called to be light. And in Genesis 1, the story is beautiful. The image is of God placing stars in the firmament of the heaven, placing each one. And it's a beautiful thing. And there is an undeniable beauty when we are the living witness of the church. There is an undeniable beauty when those two elders will not be compromised or triangled to fight one another, but instead they keep the same mind despite their circumstances. There's an undeniable beauty when there's an accusation at a church or gossip in a church and it doesn't stick. When leaders who disagree find that Jesus is more important than their own opinion. That's not just the witness of Jesus Christ. It's it's beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been able to go outside of the city in the, in the dark night and see the slides. The other piece that's undeniable that Paul is probably has in mind is, is the way mariners would use the stars. The stars that were placed in the sky were the lights that would guide them home. And I can't help but to think that's part of who we are. The lights that exist in the darkness that serve to guide the world back home. If there's anything missing in our culture and society right now, it is believers who are attempting to be unapologetically and courageously kind in every moment, in every day, in every situation. Because the truth that we will not give up on is that here, In our family, everyone, everyone belongs. Will you please stand for our benediction? This week, as you go about the work you have to do and the fun that you get to do, maybe you experience God's good pleasure. May you experience it in your heart and in your mind, and may it transform you and make you someone new. So go with God and be full of his glory. Follow his son Jesus and be led by the Spirit. Go in peace.